Heavy Cardboard, episode 138, Top 20 Thinky Fillers. Coming to you from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and today we're talking all Thinky Fillers. And, you know, other related topics in the board gaming hobby. I'm your host, Edward Euler. So how y'all doing today? Happy Saturday. I'm recording this Saturday. This releases on Monday. So hopefully y'all are having a great weekend. Uh, Some updates on what all has been going on with me and, you know, just life in general. My fractured ankle from rolling my ankle a number of weeks ago. It's still healing. Still aches pretty bad, not going to lie. Lots of icing and lots of uh, Advil and Tylenol. That's all the doc gave me for it, so I will like it, and that's that. I have about two weeks until I go in for uh, more x-rays to make sure that it's healed. Then they're going to do something that's called a stress test, which... I'll be honest, has me a little, well, stressed out, has me a little worried. Uh, stress is So he's going to check my range of motion and see how far my ankle can bend. Because apparently, according to my doctor, and this kind of makes sense, that ankle injuries are the least reported injuries, period, across the board universally. Because whenever you roll your ankle or you trip or, or whatever and you twist your ankle, people just either ice it or wrap it up or whatever, take some, take some ibuprofen or whatever and go about their day. They don't go into the doctor. I mean, I'm no different. I've probably rolled my right ankle 50 60 times in my life. Now, obviously not as severe as I have recently uh, with this one, which fractured my ankle, but I've done it a number of times and pretty badly along the way. Well, apparently your ligaments don't quite heal correctly uh, all the time. They build up scar tissue, the whole nine yards. So what my doc said is uh, once I have passed my stress test and it's healed enough, he's going to uh, take an MRI and let me know whether or not I need surgery now or if I can put it off because I don't want to be 80 years old down the road and not have a lot of mobility with my right ankle. So yeah, that's something exciting. I'm not saying it's good, but it's exciting. I will say that. So there we go. So I've been walking around in a walking boot, uh, which I got to be honest, hurts your back and hurts your other hip (laughs) after a while. Not only that, climbing stairs I have fallen downstairs or mostly, yeah, fallen down my stairs more than most elderly that you will ever hear about. It's uh, because my walking boot is thicker and the whole nine yards, you don't pick your foot up as high and it catches on the carpet. It's just, uh, I'm a train wreck right now, basically is what I'm saying. So when you see me walking around in my walking boot, um, jokes are encouraged, so have at it at least for the next couple of weeks let's see what else has been going on i've been on a bit of a cooking binge lately so uh made some chicken parmesan as well as for just some tofu parmesan which i won't eat but i will make it for her happily uh, as well as a insalata caprese which is a fancy word to say it's a mozzarella basil and heirloom tomato salad with some balsamic vinegar and some uh, olive oil turned out really really well both of those did also thanks to chef john over on food wishes if you guys if you're into cooking i would recommend checking out chef john over on youtube he made these things things called samosadillas. They're samosas, but instead of in the, you know, triangle package, which you have to deep fry in the whole nine yards, basically did 
quesadillas, but without the cheese, but made the samosa filling and turned them into quesadillas. Turned out amazing uh, a while back. And yeah, really big fan of those. So check that out. That was delicious. Really, really good. Also, uh, I guess it's been a salad kick kind of too. Made a uh, blue cheese, candy pecan, and peach salad with mixed greens uh, with a... uh, with a balsamic uh, vinaigrette as well, a little homemade balsamic vinaigrette, which that turned out awesome. Really, really good. And I kind of blame Alton Brown for this because he had a good Good Eats is back. So he did a new new episode of Good Eats for the first time in forever. So I'm anxious to check that out. I haven't seen it yet. I think it's about chicken parm, which is amazing, the timing on that. Uh, but yeah, pretty cool. I've always been a fan of my favorite geeky cook on Food Network. So looking forward to check that out. Speaking of uh, shows and movies, confession to make, the other night, uh, Jess and I had a little, uh, mini date night to where, uh, I made the dinner, made some cocktails, which I'll talk about more in a little bit and saw breakfast at Tiffany's for the first time ever. Never, never had seen that. Neither one of us had seen that movie. And there are a lot of things about that movie that could not fly if it were made today. And, but, uh, yeah, that was a really, really enjoyable, uh, uh, enjoyable movie. Um, we saw way too much of ourselves in that movie, Jess and I did, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. That was a fun night. So there's that speaking of cocktails, I don't drink hardly ever. I'll drink a, a glass of wine here or there, the occasional cocktail once in a blue moon. Um, but it's, it's been a, been a hard week. Some personal stuff been going on uh, on Jess's side of things. And so I decided to try my hand at making some cocktails. Very simple ones, mind you. I, I, do, not, um, I do not proclaim to be any kind of uh, cocktail aficionado. I, I do enjoy imbibing on occasion, but that's about it. Anyway, made a Moscow Mule for me, made her some whiskey smashes or a whiskey smash. And also made a Jack Rose and the Jack Rose, interestingly enough, it has a liqueur in it called Applejack, which I did some research on all of this. And I did not know that the Applejack is, is thought of as America's kind of own liquor. Yes. There's, you know, Kentucky bourbon. There's all that. I get that. But Applejack is fermented, made from fermented apples that goes back to colonial times and apparently there is a letter of or there's a letter out there that George Washington wrote to the original distiller of Applejack. And I, I want to say it's like Lindy's or, or something like that. The manufacturer of this uh, spirit and uh, George Washington had written them to ask for their recipe for Applejack. So I thought that was really interesting. Anyway, made some cocktails. Those turned out not terrible. They turned out pretty good. Um, Yeah, so I think it's going to become a a cocktail Wednesday. We're going to have a cocktail every Wednesday now um, due to timing of things and everything here at HCHQ. So, yeah, why not? You know, I figure a drink a week, probably not too bad an idea. All right, moving on from liquor and cocktails to poker. I realize this is a board game podcast. I promise we're going to get to that. But when you get just me, you get updates like this. And I do know that there are at least a handful of y'all that are interested in the poker updates. So 
I haven't had a lot of time to be able to go put in many sessions, but I have put in a couple of sessions. Uh, the I'm and I I made this challenge for myself, and I can't remember whether or not I told you all about it. But back in the day when I used to play for a living, I used to play 200 NL six max online. I'd 16 table that, and when I'd go play live, I would play 510 as my main game, which those are the blind levels for no limit hold'em. I'd buy in for 2,000. Well, nowadays my bankroll can't withstand that. I am I am a uh, I am a a board game podcaster and YouTuber, so I do not make anywhere near that kind of money anymore. So I play one three nowadays, which $1, $3 blinds, uh, Texas Hold'em at the Encore Casino here, or Encore Boston Harbor, it's called, which just opened a couple months ago. So if you haven't heard some of the poker uh, experiences, exploits, whatever you want to call it, over the last handful of episodes before this, you can go back and listen to those if you are so inclined. But uh, I set a challenge for myself. I took $1,000 as a disposable poker fund and my goal was to run that up to 10,000 to go play in the 2-5 game at that point and move up in stakes right build up my bankroll and some people had asked what happens if you'd lost the first thousand well I would have replenished it when I could afford it and then started over but thankfully that hasn't happened and so this started right before my trip to the WSOP with my buddy Jody which again go back and listen to all that there have been uh, 15 sessions since that's gone on the last two sessions uh let's go back and look uh my last or my penultimate session, I guess you would call it, uh, just over seven hours made uh, two and a half buy-ins. So for those, that that's just under 800 um, in that. And the session, the most recent session was last Monday. I played a long session, played eight and a half hours and was in for two buy-ins, which is 600 and cashed out just over 2,200. So for a profit of 1660 or so. And for those that care about this type of thing, and let's face it, a lot of us track our board game plays and all that stuff. So I track all my sessions, winning or losing, which helps keep you honest to yourself, which I find really, really good. And I know some folks are going to ask. So the app that I use is called Poker Log. You can, it's free. Um, although you could remove the ads or whatever and pay, but whatever, it's free. I, uh, I have 15 sessions since I started this this challenge for myself, call it a bankroll challenge, uh, back on June 27th, 15 sessions that comprise of just over 93 hours, uh, showing a profit of 4,900. So that's uh, uh, per hour, about just under $53 an hour I've been making playing poker. So that's that's pretty good. Uh, my biggest loss is 469, and my biggest win is is the most recent one, 1660. Uh, so yeah, there you go. And longest session was just under 15 hours. Uh, shortest session was like 30 minutes. Um, just wasn't feeling it, so it turned around and left. So there's that. But yeah, uh, I thoroughly enjoy playing poker. It is very much my hobby nowadays, now that board games has become my my career and my profession. Um, I still very much obviously enjoy board games, but it's kind of interesting that things have kind of flip-flopped a little bit. And poker 
it may not always be the most relaxing thing that I do, but it is my kind of escapism. It's I can focus solely on just playing poker and tune out everything else stressful and everything else that's weighing on me in the world. And I can just focus on enjoying my time at the table and just hanging out with, I, I joke and say my coworkers, but you know, the other people that are playing cards and we're playing one, three. And one three, no one's going to lose a ton of money, so everyone should be relatively friendly. Of course, you get your, you get the occasional folk, but the the person that you hear and you see over on YouTube that is me. That's how I am at the poker table. Uh, when I'm real quiet or I'm listening to my headphones or whatever, um, I tend to not be in the best place, or I tend not to be on my A game because when I'm me is when I'm most comfortable, which means I'm playing my best. So, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting in how much I have learned about myself sitting at a poker table for, you know, tens of thousands of hours over the course of my life and how much I've learned just about myself and tells about myself and ways to be able to introspection, being able to evaluate myself. I find really, really interesting and has been uh, helpful in other parts of my life. So the, I guess not positive overall and it's entertainment that pays me. It's a hobby that I make money at. So that's, that's always a positive as well. Right? Right. All right. It's a board game podcast. Let's talk about some board game stuff. Yesterday, Jess and I went down to the Cape, uh, out to Cape Cod, about two hours away from where we are just North of Boston and went out and visited with Mark Herman, the Mark Herman, a war game designer extraordinaire. Uh, he, when I had done a conversation with uh, Heavy Cardboard, an interview with Mark Herman earlier this year, he had said, hey, I'm going to be out there later on this summer. Let's try and get together. Well, yesterday was that us doing exactly that. So we went out to his house out on the Cape and met his wonderful family. It was it was really great to hang out and just, you know, I'm still kind of in awe of Mark Herman because he's Mark Herman. But at the same time, he's just a guy. He's a grandpa who loves hanging out with his granddaughter and his his wife and his kids. It, it was it was really, really a pleasant experience. We grilled out burgers and dogs. Uh, we went out to eat uh, when we first got there to a diner, which anybody that knows me knows that I am a huge lover of the most American of restaurants, which is the American Diner. And we had a great meal there, got to hang out and... Then after we went to the diner, we headed upstairs for a pretty epic game of Churchill. We played the tournament scenario, which is five conferences, and Mark played as the Americans, just play or as Roosevelt slash Truman, just played as Churchill. And I wanted to redeem myself after our playthrough, and I chose Stalin to play. And since we didn't record it or do anything like that, we just did it to enjoy ourselves and to have fun. It took us about three hours with dinner in between and a nice dinner break with the family. And we ended up, you know, when we broke for dinner, we were four of the five conferences in. There was a four-point spread with Mark in the lead, Jess in the middle, me uh, trailing. We ended up in scenario three where I broke through and I was the only one to reach Germany as the uh, as the Soviets, 
and then, or as the Russians, as it were. And then uh, we failed because I did not advance to Manchuria. The the A-bomb, the uh, Japan surrendering did not come into effect. So it was scenario three, the ending. And it ended up with yours truly taking the win by exactly two points. Jess and Mark tied. I think I finished at 51 and they finished at 49 each. It was an absolute epic game. Epic finish was a phenomenal experience and got to hear stories from Mark about his days working at the Pentagon and all of this stuff and just hanging out. Three gamers that enjoy heavy games and war games. And then after we got done, we just kind of sat around kibitzing and then he had a his table in in his war room, he says, uh, had his table is a custom made on top of a folding table piece of plywood that he kind of fashioned into an actual table. And on it, he has a bunch of oversized maps. And by oversized, I mean four foot by six foot maps, one of which that the Churchill board was actually laying on top of was Empire of the Sun. And then at the far end of the table was a, a Waterloo game. Uh, that he had made for uh, uh, C3I magazine that I think is coming out in December that he said he designed in four days and it turned out really good. And so he went, he rolled us through the Waterloo game. And then afterwards I was like, all right, Mark, at some point I would like, I've owned Empire of the Sun for quite some time and I would love to be able to actually play this game. So what is the best way to learn this game other than, you know, learning from Mark Herman? And he joked and said, well, I could teach it to you in about 15 minutes. I said, okay. He said, you want me to now? I said, well, I mean, we were going to hit the road, but if you, he's like, no, no, no. If you want to learn and absolutely. So he broke it out. We we play not played, but he broke out some of it, the counters of uh, one of his two or three copies of Empire of the Sun, and we he showed us on the oversized map, and he ran us through it, and he said, "Look, the rest of it is just Chrome." He says, and he ran us through the cards, how supply works, how battles work, and the whole nine yards. And I was like, "Oh, that's really not that intimidating." He said, "Yeah, exactly." He said, obviously, the strategy is way deeper than what I just showed you. But and so he was teaching, Jess was sitting down and I was kind of standing up over her shoulder watching all of this. And it was amazing to, to listen to him the way he taught the game, which is going to pay dividends on when I go about teaching this game on the show. I think that's going to be really, really awesome. So long story long, he taught us the gist of how to play Empire of the Sun so that now when I read the rule book, it'll all make sense and I'll have a leg up on being able to do so. So, so after that, we, uh, we called it a night, we headed home uh, about two hour drive and there you go. So that was, that was a heck of a way to spend a Friday. Let me tell you, that was, that was a really cool experience. And, uh, we, we tentatively made plans to do it again when he's back up here because he lives down in New York now. And yeah, that was just, that was an awesome, awesome way to spend a Friday. Uh, let's see what else we got going on. Grand Con is next week. So Grand Con up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's a convention uh, put on by Brian Lenz and some other folks up there that we attended last year and he invited us back. So we will be attending that. Uh, Jess is going to be hosting some uh, 
games of Lovelace and Babbage, in which she was the lead developer on. Uh, not artwork, not anything else, just the lead developer of the game. So she has a couple of copies of that she's going to be bringing with her. And I'm going to be bringing, or I'm going to be uh, hosting on Mars, as well as um, one or two other uh, games just playing with folks that some folks are excited about. So I'm looking forward to that. On that note, in addition to attending our uh, Grand Con, we also have a meetup. So if you are going to be at Grand Con and you wish to hang out with us and, you know, have some decent food as well, Saturday night at 7 p.m. across the street from the convention center, literally across the street, there's a restaurant called Rome, R-O-A-M. We've eaten there before. Good food. Uh, 7 p.m. on Saturday. It's a ticketed event, but it's free. So just you can sign up. Uh, through the uh, Grand Con website and do all that and join Jess and myself over there for a meetup for a couple hours. Just going to hang out and uh, yeah, just hang out, have some food and uh, visit with folks before we head back on Sunday. So check that out. So Saturday, 7 p.m. meet up at Grand Con. Hopefully you guys join us there. Moving on to some games I've been playing here. So obviously Churchill, which I pretty much just covered pretty well. But we also played Glass Road. Uh, Glass Road, uh, we played it two-player. There isn't enough turnover in the market for my liking. If if there was a variant, which I, I granted you could house rule, that there is some sort of uh, more turnover in the market to where you see more buildings, I think I would enjoy it more, and you could always house rule it to make it so. And I realize that there is one of the cards in Glass Road that allows you to uh, grab some of the tiles and make your own personal little building supply. But overall, I don't dislike the game, which I I did dislike it uh, more prior to my recent plays of it. But I still do, still just don't love uh, this. This, uh, I, I think I enjoy it more with more players, but overall, eh, it's, it's fine. Uh, yeah, just, it's fine. We also played the, a prototype of the deluxe edition of Yido coming from Board and Dice because we streamed it, uh, on their behalf and enjoyed our plays of it. Uh, I, I don't think that I would ever want to play that game as that what is now considered the extended game, which is 11 rounds, the six rounds that the deluxe edition uh, turns the game into with a couple of uh, added module expansions, I think is a perfect length for that game. And yeah, I, I think the six six round version of that game with the new specialist and everything makes that a really enjoyable worker placement and recipe fulfillment game that everybody seemed to really enjoy. So there's that. Also Taj Mahal, a classic Reiner Knizia game that I hadn't heard of until about a week and a half or yeah, almost two weeks ago. Okay. Check that. I'd heard of it. I'd never seen it or played it or knew anything about it, but I'd heard that there was a Reiner Knizia game called Taj Mahal. And in this game, it's kind of a pressure luck uh, bidding game uh, with a little bit of area control a route building kind of in it that uh, that I did well in our warm up game did not do well in the stream game of but uh, really enjoyed this one as well as I do a lot of Reiner Knizia's older games and 
then we also played Rome City of Marble, which is an abstract tile laying game. And the tiles are rhombus shaped or diamond shaped, if you want to go that direction, where it's all about building buildings with these tiles, which these tiles or these buildings will consist of three, four, five, or six of these rhombus shaped tiles. And it the theme is completely pasted on. But the abstract game mechanisms in it, I think, are pretty interesting. We're going to be streaming that next week. So look for that. Uh, enjoyed that. So, yeah, I have basically have played some amazing games, i.e. Churchill. And the rest have been all at least decent, if not good. As far as acquisitions, just a couple of games. Got a copy of New Frontiers from Rio Grande, as well as the deluxe edition of Puerto Rico, which I haven't opened yet in on purpose because I wanted to do so on stream with you folks to be able to show how it looks, how it compares to the really fancy limited edition and the basic edition. So I'm going to be doing that next week. And New Frontiers is Race for the Galaxy, the board game. And we have only played uh, New Frontiers with the expansion, which is not released. We played that at uh, the gathering earlier this year. And both Jess and I really, really enjoyed that game. We're going to talk about Race for the Galaxy here coming up when we get into the meat of the uh, list here. So enough about that, but we'll double back onto that later. And as far as kind of anticipating, not really anything on the shopping list per se right now, but as far as uh, anticipating, there's a couple of games that we're going to be streaming, but I'm also legitimately excited to check out, um, well, three games actually, two coming from Capstone, so both Cooper Island as well as Maracaibo, uh, Cooper Island coming from uh Oda or Andreas Odenol and Maracaibo from Alexander Pfister, as well as Pax Transhumanity from uh, Ion Game Design slash Sierra Madre. Really, really looking forward to those games, which should be arriving sometime in the next month or so, if not sooner. So looking forward to those. And as far as looking forward to playing, a lot of the older stuff that I talked about last episode, I really want to get to the table, um, as well as the one big new game that I just am really excited to play more of and delve more into his BIOS origins. So looking forward to those. lists people love their lists so i thought you know what this was requested a number of times over the course of the last year by patrons and folks on social media and the whole nine yards what are my top 20 thinky fillers well i'll be honest when i made this list i didn't think i was going to be able to come up with a top 20 thinky filler list and so i was like well maybe it's only going to be a top 10 and then I went to making this list and it ended up being like a top 35 potentially. So, wow, uh, there were more here than I expected. So I did have to whittle this down and then put them in some sort of order. And so I spent a number of hours doing so. So here we go. So what is Thinky Filler first and foremost? I figure I need to explain that, at least from my point of view. So how I limited this is any game that 
you wouldn't center a game day around, or at least not the reason that you're going to be going to a game day, at least for me. So so, some games and I mean, like the climbers or, you know, something along those lines or Arboretum, stuff like that, any kind of small thinky game that you're not going to be like, you know, I'm going to play this game. You may play this at a game day. Absolutely. And in fact, I would encourage folks to do so, but it's not the reason I'm going to get together with folks to play games. If that makes sense, I hope. And on top of that, I put in one other limiter on this because otherwise things got a little squirrely, I noticed. So that extra limiter was I limited it to a max of 45 minute game length. Now, obviously this is going to be, some folks are going to hear some of these games and be like, there's no way you're playing that in 45 minutes. My group doesn't, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe, maybe my group would play this longer than in 45 minutes. So what I did was I did it by published game length time of 45 minutes. There is kind of one exception to that to where it says it's 45 to maybe 60. But once you hit the 60 minute mark, it exploded into way too big a list. And I was like, okay, we're going to just limit this to 45 minutes and call it good from there. All right. So that is my limiters that I put on and my descriptor for what I consider a thinky filler. Now, a couple of, uh, or one more caveat here is that I got to be honest with you. There are going to be some omissions on this list, either because I haven't played them or I haven't played them in forever. And therefore I wasn't, maybe I wasn't real keen on them previously, or I just haven't played it enough for it to make on this list. And we'll talk about those at the end of this list and go from there. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get this started, shall we? So starting off, number 20, top thinky filler, the Shipwreck Arcana, published in 2017, designed by Kevin Bishop and published by Merimorph Games. So I hadn't heard of this game until, I don't know, a month and a half ago. Um, In fact, the day I fractured my ankle. So yeah, about five weeks ago is when I heard about this game. It is, it's a co-op. It's the only co-op that you're going to find on this list. However, it's a logic puzzle and I am completely and totally smitten with logic puzzles and it's deductive reasoning. And even though it's a co-op, it still scratches this logic puzzle itch. It's the same reason I enjoy escape rooms and escape room games that this game really does that, but you can play this two to five players. Now we've played it uh, three and four players, haven't played it two, haven't played it five, so I can't speak to all of the player count. And it says it plays in 10 to 30 minutes. I I would argue that it plays a little bit longer with, with more players, so up to 45 minutes seems about right. But yeah, if you're looking for some kind of deductive reasoning, uh, logic game, and you don't mind the occasional co-op, which I'll be honest, I do, yet this seems to work, so keep that in mind, I would definitely recommend Shipwreck Arcana as my number 20 thinky filler. Now, moving up to number 19 is a game that 
I got to be honest, I think of more kind of as a party game, but I do know that there are going to be people just hammering me because I'm calling this a party game. But my number 19 is Bonanza from 1997. Uwe Rosenberg and published by about 23 different publishers. So, you know, Rio Grande and a host of others. So Bonanza, it's a Uwe Rosenberg game, right? And not that I had to shoehorn Uwe onto this list, but yeah, it plays two to seven players. And when you get into player counts, that higher number, those tend to be party games, but this really is a strategy game. I imagine most, if not all of you guys listening, are familiar with Bononza. And it's got some cartoonish artwork uh, that it's all about planting bean farms and harvesting bean farms and trading. But the hook to this game and the thing that makes this game tricky, I think is a good way to put it, is you're, when you acquire cards, you have a hand of cards and you must keep them in the order in which they were dealt to you. So there's no, like in, if you're playing Rummy or you're playing some other game in which you have a hand of cards, you normally sort them by suit or tissue or something like that. You sort them by suit or whatever sorting thing that you like to do within your hand of cards. You cannot do that in Bonanza. That is against the rules. And that becomes a very tricky aspect of this game. It is a huge uh, trading and some, a little bit of negotiation or maybe a lot of bit of negotiation in this game, as well as set collection that I've only played this with shoot. I think five or more players. I may have played this with four, but I've definitely never played it with two or three. So I can't speak to it. 45 minute play time. But if you have not played Bonanza, I highly recommend checking out. That's my number 19, Bonanza by Uwe Rosenberg. And before we go on, I guess I should point out. So I figured out, I went through and I got the the list of what year designer and publisher for all of these games to help. If you guys hear any of these, it makes it a little bit easier for you guys to track them down. But also whenever you search on BGG, some of these have a whole bunch of different names with similar titles or whatever. So it should make it a little bit easier. But when I was going through this, I noticed that my list is covers 45 years of gaming design, which I think was pretty awesome. It's not, it's not all weighted towards new or early or mid it's, it, it runs 45 years. So thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, moving on to number 18 and this one Published in 2018, so we're starting out a little bit new heavy with uh, this in Shipwreck Arcana, but that is Peep Mats or Songbirds, designed by Ben Pinchback and Mark Riddle and published by Lookout Games. Now, I was really smitten with the artwork uh, with this game to begin with, but also the mechanisms in this game in which uh, you're playing bird cards from your hand to collect seeds and to feed birds at a bird feeder. Not a lot of games about that. So I, the theme kind of was unique. And even though I'm not a birder, is that what you call bird watching birders? Okay. I'm not a bird watcher. Uh, I, I do appreciate a beautiful bird when I see one, but you get the point. It's not a theme that normally would grab me, but it is different. And I like different, uh, 
It reminds me of that old new newprint commercial. Little, yellow, better, different. Anyway, it, I'm dating myself. Moving on, Pete Matz. I love the fact that the theme fits really well, but it also has some really cool mechanisms about where the birds of prey will scare off your birds from the bird feeder. You have chipmunks, or maybe it's squirrels, I forget, one of, one of the two rodents that will come and steal some of your seeds, which uh, you need to avoid doing and limit doing so. And when you're playing with gamers, which pretty much that's the majority of the folks that I play with, this can become a really cutthroat, really hard, tough game. And I really, really enjoyed this. It plays two to four players. Uh, the time on it says 20 to 40 minutes. I've played it at two, three, and four and like it at all the player counts. So something to check out. So that's Peep Mats, my number uh, 18 on the list. There are some really ugly games that are on this list, like aesthetically not really pleasing to me. However, this next one is not on that. It is on the opposite end of that. And that is what originally attracted me to this game, just the artwork alone, and then come to find out, oh, hey, I really, really like this game. And that is Tao Long, The Way of the Dragon, published in 2017 from Thundergriff Games, designed by Dox Luchin and Pedro Latro. Now, this game is very much in abstract. It plays two players. It's a two-player only, and it says in 10 to 30 minutes, it can run a little bit longer, the more thinky that you wish to be uh, with this game. It's a circular abstract-like game uh, that has a rondelle, but it limits what action you take, limits what actions your opponent can take, and vice versa. And it has different variations and different ways you can set up the board for it to be a, more, a tighter, more constricted game, more difficult, or more wide open. And the artwork is, as you might could uh, assume from the name Tao Long, kind of has a... a uh, Asian dragon, uh, you know, uh, yin yang kind of feel to the artwork. And it's just a really beautiful aesthetic to the game. And come to find out that when Michael and I played this on our, on the, uh, stream, this, we really, really, uh, were quite, uh, enamored with this game. So that's why it makes my list at number 17. How long the way of the dragon so moving up to number 16, we have a lot of these, you're to the probably lack of surprise to a lot of you guys. Uh, if you're interested in these, we've streamed a number of these over the course of the last few years. So if you want to actually go see a playthrough of it, a lot of these are going to be covered. Um, and because let's face it, the majority of the games that I play nowadays are either for to prepare for a live stream or prepare for a review. So that kind of makes sense, right? So moving up now to number 16, Mini Rails, designed by Mark Garretts and published by Mo Ideas Game Design, a train-themed uh, stock buying and track lane game. Yes, I mean, it had me on the theme alone. And then when I first saw this, when Dave over at Mo Ideas uh, kind of gave me an elevator pitch to this, I thought, wow, this is super simple mechanically and super just thinky and cutthroat as all get out. It can be so nasty if you want it to be. Doesn't have to be, but it can be. It plays three to five 
In my experience, it plays best at four or five players. Um, so a higher player count plays in, and this is the one that kind of breaks that 45 minute. It plays in about 45 minutes, can go to about 60. So eh, there's a little bit. All right. On your turn or uh, in a given round, you're going to do two things. You're going to buy a share and you're going to build some track and you take each action once and you take them one at a time going around the table. So when you choose one, you have to choose the other, your next action. And what you choose when matters and what you do on that action matters. So every single decision in this game is meaningful. And it can just be a, uh, for, it's funny, on BGG, the weight rating is 2.2, but I would put it considerably higher just due to the amount of anticipation of what other players are going to do as well as trying to manipulate the other players into doing what it is that you want them to do and when there's a lot more thought here than at first glance so that's why it is my number 16 mini rails number 15 sees the first maybe the last i don't know we'll see but the first reiner knizia game on this list so my number 15 modern art goes back to 1992 and published by a whole bunch of different publishers there's about 18 of them that have done modern art and there are tons of different iterations there are depending on where you live or where you might import this game from different countries have different artwork styles and some are far more aesthetically pleasing than others because artwork is very subjective i think there is a portuguese version that i would love to get a copy of that i do not have that is absolutely beautiful i have played with some very not so beautiful copies of this game but in the end it's okay because this is arguably the quintessential auction game. It's all auctions all the time. Repeat, you're buying different artwork and auctioning off. And who does the better job of a whole host of different types of auctions? So these aren't all blind bids or once arounds or highest bidder. There, there's a whole host of different auctions that are available to you or as the auctioneer on your turn to be able to uh, offer up in the various types of artwork and whoever ends up with the the greatest portfolio wins. It's a very simple game uh, mechanically, but there is, well, I mean, like I said, it's arguably the quintessential auction game because that's all this game is. So if you like auctions, I certainly hope you've played this. If not, do yourself a favor and find a copy artwork, notwithstanding of modern art. My number 15, my number 14 Docmas, designed by Miko Punicalio and published by Lotta Pellet and later Renegade Games, published in 2016. So Docmas, it's it's a... Wow, this game kind of broke my brain a little bit when I first played it in a sense that the theme in this, it's very much an abstract, but it says your goal is to lead an expedition to the island of Docmas, the ancestral god of your tribe. And the board, it's set up to where there are eight different boards in which you have little tents, we call them, or markers that will be placed out on the board. And you start out in on one of the edges of one of the boards 
and then you have uh you have a a god tile that you're going to acquire that is going to allow you to manipulate the world in some way. You might be able to rotate one of the boards. You might be able to shift a board forward or jump over another board and completely manipulate how the landscape looks because all, and the reason you're doing so is to be able to place your, your tents under these various temples that are out on the board. But the trick here is you must always place adjacent to one of your existing temples. So rotating it 90 degrees or moving it across to the other side of the board might give you completely different opportunities and lead to some really clever play that you're not always going to see or your opponents won't anticipate or they'll do something that you're like, oh, wow, I never even saw that as an option. That was really clever. Well done. Or, you know, damn you. I can't believe you did that. I Wow, I never would have thought that. Damn you type thing. So Docmas, it does have an expansion, which adds a little bit uh, to the game. But I think the, the base game is good enough uh, on its own to make this list. So number 14, Docmas. The first of what will be a handful of trick-taking games finds us at number 13, Trick of the Rails. Published in 2013 from Japan brand originally, later by Terra Nova Games, and designed by Hisashi Hayashi. Trick of Rails is an 18xx themed implementation boiled down to a trick-taking game. No, that's not really a fair way to put it. I would have to say that it's themed on in 18xx in which there are it's a trick-taking game where you're depending on whether it's a stock round or an operations round you're either going to be increasing the value of a certain railroad company or you're going to be investing in various railroad companies now i'm you know kind of partial to this game because of the fact that it has a lot of the famous american railroads the pen it has the nyc it has the bno and has all of that but it also i feel is a really good trick taking game now a lot of people feel that this game is far too random and it's too hard to wrap your head around what it is you're trying to do and there are instances where you know what there were games in which a player just gets burnt by the the deal and they just really didn't have a real good chance to win the game that can happen in this game on occasion but for the most part i have found myself to be fairly competitive but i also think of myself as a pretty good trick-taking uh game player so keep that in mind and it is one of the more i guess complex it's not a hard game but the fact that it alternates between stock rounds and operation rounds. Sometimes people will get a little bit stuck on being able to understand what it is they're trying to do and the why of what they're trying to do. But if you can understand it, um, there's a reason that this game is my number 13 trick of the rails. Another card game is my number 12 that originally debuted in 2015 designed by Dan Kassar. And that is Arboretum. Originally published uh, by Z-Man Games and later by Renegade Game Studios, Arboretum is not a trick-taking game. It is a beautiful game about the tableau building in which you are building up an arboretum of various 
trees. Now, I will say that I do have an affinity towards the original edition for I like the artwork style better, but mechanically they are identical games. But the earlier edition had my favorite tree in the game, uh, the olive tree, which which is omitted in the later edition, which is kind of a bummer to me. Uh, I just think the the olive tree was really pretty. Anyway, the every single decision in Arboretum is gut wrenching. On your turn, you're going to draw two cards. You're going to play a card to your tableau, and then you must discard. That's it. That's all you do on your turn. But drawing your cards, what card to play, and what card to discard, every one of those decisions hurts in the best way I want a game to hurt. It is agonizing. It's all about building up the best arboretum of the various species of trees, but also the clever part of this game is you need to be able to have the highest value in your hand at the end of the game to be able to score that species of tree in your arboretum or to keep other players from scoring their, uh, even if you don't have say the willow tree in your arboretum, but somebody has a massive one that would score. If you keep, enough willow cards in your hand that have a higher value than what they have in their hand, their massive amount of work building that up all for naught because they don't even get to score it. So it can be pretty nasty, can be pretty dirty. It plays two to four players. I like it at all player counts. Uh, and it plays in about 30 minutes, can go to about 45. But I was so smitten with this game when I first played it that before we finished our first game of this in 2015, I ordered a copy of this. I was, I was that impressed with it. And that is my number 12 game Arboretum. The final game in the lower half, if you call it of my top 20, number 11, the only Stefan Feld that made this list. And that is of course the Spiekerstadt. So 2010 is when it was published, originally published by Igert Spiel, Z-Man Games, and a handful of other publishers. It has since been re-implemented by Jorvik from Stronghold Games. I'll be honest, I have not played Jorvik, uh, so I don't know if that change... I know it incorporates the expansion of the Spiekerstadt in it, so I cannot speak to whether or not it changes anything within the game. But the Spiekerstadt is a really, really hard and I say hard in that frustrating, but not hard mechanically, uh, bidding or auction game where you're placing uh, workers out there and out onto various rows, which will represent you being able to claim cards and to be able to acquire cards. And you're going to be purchasing these cards. Whoever places first gets first dibs on being able to purchase a card but for every other worker that is placed on that place they have to pay one additional dollar so if you place and then three other people place on that space it's going to cost you four dollars to be able to purchase that card but you could always pass to then be able to do uh purchase other cards maybe you did so as a bluff or maybe you actually were one of those other three players that placed there and you placed third. So you place first and third on there. So you placed first 
would have cost you four dollars. Nope, not gonna not gonna pay that. Second, not gonna pay three dollars. But now you get another chance to do so. Now you only pay two dollars. Maybe now you're willing to pay for that card to be able to uh add it to your tableau to do various things. And that that game of chicken as well as anticipation, which I notice is a theme I'm noticing with a lot of these thinky fillers and things that I enjoy of playing the other players and anticipating what they're going to do, but also trying to manipulate them into doing things that you want them to do or doing things you you making them think you want them to do something so that they do something else, which is actually what you wanted them to do originally that that theme carries through in a lot of these games so if you're anything like me do yourself a favor and check out the Speicherstadt, which i will spell this one it's s-p-e-i-c-h-e-r-s-t-a-d-t the Speicherstadt from stefan feld or and again i can't speak to this exactly i know it's been re-implemented by jorvik from stronghold games which i'm sure that's going to be more widely available than the Speicherstadt. although i do know the Speakerstat is available on the secondhand market over on BGG for a reasonable price. So check that out, my number 11. Welcome to the top 10. Now, when I made this list, it kind of felt a little arbitrary because could the Speakerstat at number 11 be higher on this list than a given day? Of course it could. Could it be a little bit lower? Yes. Would Docmas be a little bit higher depending on my mood? Of course. So keep that in mind. The way I see it is, if it's in this top 20, I'm re- I am really like it, as well as possibly some of the other runner-ups, which we'll talk to about here in a little bit. But that said, I stand by the list, and I feel good about the order in which these are. So here we go. Number 10, which is a game which I was surprised not a lot of people think of as a thinky filler, but... Technically is. It plays in 45 minutes, so it fits the it fits the criteria, and that is Metropolis or Metropolis, the the YS at the end, so Metropolis, Metropolis. It was published originally in 2008, designed by Sebastian Pachon, and published by Istari Games. Another auction slash bidding game that has what is, in my opinion, and just one of the ugliest game boards in the hobby. But my Lord, do I love this game. It is all about, uh, you have, I believe it's 13 buildings of three different sizes. And you're all trying to construct luxury, elegant buildings of glass and steel, defying the laws of balance and all this. Who who will eventually impose their style to leave an indelible trail on the history of the city? I don't get that theme at all. It's just a auction game in which you're, you place down, the board is broken down into different areas. There are five different areas, uh, uh, neighborhoods call them in. And then within each neighborhood, there are different colored spaces and there are pathways to the different areas and adjacency to the different buildings. Everybody has some secret goals. Like you want to be on red areas or you want to be on brown areas, or you want to have, uh, three buildings surrounding a, what we call lampposts in the middle of various areas, stuff like that. So you have these secret goals 
which gives you a direction and a a urgency or agency on why you're bidding to place your buildings on certain areas. But you have 13 buildings which range from 1 to 13. And I think the taller four are, uh, or the the last four, the highest numbers are the tallest, then you have the medium, and then the one through five or whatever are the short buildings. And you can start the bidding on any location on the board using any of your available buildings. So if I start with, say, a small five, going clockwise around the table, whoever's next can't either passes and they're out, or they must place a higher value building onto the next space adjacent to that. And then it kind of snakes around and goes around. So do you start where you want to win an area or do you want to start someplace that you're hoping will eventually end up to an area that you're trying to win where you'll throw down one of your high value buildings to be able to claim it? And as you claim these locations, you lose that building because it's now permanently on that space. So you lose some of the bidding power that you have, but hopefully it's for an important location for you to be able to score at the end of the game. There are other incentives to be able to build on certain locations as well, but that's kind of the gist of the game as a whole. And man, the first time I played this, I was smitten with it. The 10th time I've played it, I'm smitten with it. Really, really enjoy this game. And that is Metropolis or Metropolis from 2008. My number 10 on the list, which I should point out also that a number of these are out of print and unavailable. And this one is definitely on that list. So keep an eye out. If you ever want to acquire a copy, take a look on the secondhand market. If you listen to this podcast for any amount of time, or heck, even if you've listened to this podcast, I think I've already mentioned, I have a deep affection for the auction mechanism in games. I love auctions. I love real life in-person auctions. Uh, whenever some of the bigger uh, conventions, board game conventions out there, they, ha- they host uh, live auctions. I absolutely love those. I love pitting players against one another and everyone having to put in Everyone has their own valuations on things, and I think that that is a fantastic way to just go through life. I think that's a fun thing, and I know that there are some designers as well as a number of folks out there that feel that auctions are a crutch to get out of having to balance a game, and I could not disagree with that more. And this next game is another uh, iteration of the auction mechanism, and that is, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation on this one, but Condottieri, 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 C-O-N-D-O-T-T-I-E-R-E, originally published in 1995, Designed by Dominique Erhardt and Duccio Vitale and published by Eurogames and about a dozen other publishers. Now, I do want to say that there is one version of this game that I have been warned off of. And I think, don't quote me on this, but I have heard that I think it's the Z-Man Games edition or the Fantasy Flight Games edition. It's one of those that made marked changes like important changes to the game that made the game worse is what i've heard the version that i have played is actually the original euro games version that is the only version of the game that i have played uh and so that's the one that i'm going to be speaking of it's it's very very old i mean it's what uh 
20, uh, 24 years old or so now. But getting back to what what is the game? Well, the object of Condottieri is to acquire four connected provinces in Renaissance Italy. The theme, whatever. I couldn't care less. It's all about the mechanisms for me for this. But in reading from BGG, it says to do this, players auction off different provinces on the board and bid on these provinces with a hand of cards representing mercenaries, seasons, scarecrows, and political figures. However, unlike standard auctions in which only the highest bidder loses their bid in Condottieri, wow, easier for me to read than say, every player loses their bid. Players are, in effect, bidding the number of troops they're willing to lose in order to win a province. However, special effects, cards, shake up the contest and leave the players guessing. So it's not a perfect information, obviously, because you don't know what hand of cards your opponent has. But also there are some rule breakers that you're aware of before the game starts. You just don't know who has them and when they're going to come into play. And I have enjoyed every single play of this game. It plays two to six players. Uh, I have only played this at four, five, and six. I've enjoyed it at all of those player counts. I don't know. Area control game like this uh, don't tend to play well at lower player counts, So, but I won't definitively say that having not played it. But at a higher player count, I really, really enjoy Condottieri. So my number nine. Going back now to a two-player only game, and definitely one of the better ones out there, and a classic, in my opinion, is from 2000 Battle Line, designed by, yep, Reiner Kinesia, the second Reiner Kinesia on my list, and published from GMT Games. Now, this game, uh, it's players have, uh, face off against one another, and they're attempting to win battle by taking five of the nine flags that are positioned in between them, or if not five of the nine, three in a row. And you do so by playing cards into a battle lot or into a, a one of the flags. So think of them as nine different battles that are taking place. And you're going to be playing one card at a time, alternating play by going ahead, playing one of these cards down. Now they, it ends up being your best three card poker hand. Now all poker that I know of is about five cards. So this kind of truncates that a little bit, you know, three of a kind, a straight, a flush, a straight flush, stuff like that. But there are also there are also some special rule breaker cards that are available as well. And there's no way to discard a card. However, there are ways to kind of punt on certain battles to where, oh, you know what? I'm focusing more over here. So this one over here, I'm not going to worry about winning. And you can only claim a flag when you can when you can prove that you can win that it is impossible for your opponent to beat you and you can claim that flag. Now you're only allowed to play a total of three cards per battle. And so it becomes a, a real chess match back and forth of playing cards and a game of chicken. Do, do they have the card? Do I have the card? Do they know that I have the card? Do they think I have the card type thing to be able to be able to do so? The other 
real big catch on this is once a flag has been claimed and you're uh, either by you or by your opponent, you can no longer play cards into that battle. So even if you've only played one card there, if your opponent was able to prove that they you would not be able to win this battle because of them playing three cards in there because maybe you were playing to other battles, it's locked. You can no longer quote unquote discard or get rid of junk cards that you won't need into that area because you do have you're playing a card and drawing a card. So you only have a certain amount of cards in which to draw or to be able to play from. It becomes such a huge tug of war. Uh, I played this uh, a lot uh, just f- enjoy, you know, for fun. I've also played uh, in at the WBC, the World Board Game Championship of this and did not fare well. Players are very, very good at this, and I love, love, love this game. So that is Battleline, my number eight. The newest game on this list is the only game from this calendar year, 2019, and that is Shobu, designed by Manolis Varanis and Jamie Sajak, uh, published by Smirk and Laughter Games. I saw this ooh, a number of months ago originally, and as soon as I saw it, it's eye-popping because of the production quality. It is four wooden boards with a piece of rope and some white stones and some black stones. So it kind of gives that, it's very much an abstract, but it gives kind of that chess go, that type of feel and just a simple, elegant craftsmanship feel to the game. You could play this on a beach without a game. You could use your finger to draw the grids of the four boards. You could find some seashells and draw a line in between the boards and boom, you could play this game. Now, I'm all for supporting the publisher, so I would recommend actually purchasing a copy of Shobu. But that said, this game, when I actually have played it, I am completely and totally in love with this game. It is, like I said, an abstract for two players only plays in 15 to 30 minutes and I have yet to win this game just owns my soul at this very simple mechanically to where there are four boards a light board and a dark board on your side of the rope and one uh, a light and dark on your opponent's side of the rope and you either have the dark stones or the light stones and those are on your side of each of the four boards On your turn, you must make two moves, a passive move and an aggressive move. The passive move must be made on either of the two boards on your side of the rope. You can move them one or two spaces in any direction. So you can move it forward two, backward two, diagonal, uh, up, right one, however you want to. The only rule is on the passive move, you can't impact another stone. You it must be just a to a free space. The aggressive move must be done on the opposite color board. So if you did the light board on your side, you could do the dark board on your side or the dark board on your opponent's side, and it must mirror the exact same movement with any one of your stones. However, you can push an opponent's stone, a single stone of your opponent's uh, in that direction, hopefully pushing it off the board. By doing so, The goal of the game is to have pushed all of your opponent's stones off of one board, but you're actually playing across all four boards, and whoever does so first off of one board wins the game. It is simple. It is deep. It is maddeningly frustrating for me, and I cannot get enough of this game. I highly, highly, highly recommend checking out my number seven game, Shobu.
getting back to out of print games, let's move up to my number six from 2008. That is Habengut or Habengut as it's spelled, designed by Carlo A. Rossi and published by Two Plus Games as well as a couple of other publishers. Now, this one definitely out of print. I don't even own a copy of it, so that's probably why you haven't seen it on the show. Um, it's it's pretty hard to come by. Uh, here in the States, um, it's only on the secondhand market, but players are stockbrokers during the second industrial revolution, trying to make as much money as possible while also coming across as good citizens by donating money to charity during the course of the game, players purchase and sell shares of stock shocker. I understand this being uh, Edward Euler of heavy cardboards list, wait, shares of stock and bidding and auctions. What? Then you manipulate the stock prices with the cards that they share with their two neighbors. So in a four-player game, I'm adjacent to two players, but the third player I have no impact on and vice versa. Then additionally, players donate stock to charity, which is sold off at the end of the round for a charitable donation. So whatever this share value is worth at the end of that round, it gets cashed out. Here's the hook. Whoever donates the least to charity at the end of the game loses no matter what. So if you were too stingy and you were too greedy, you cannot win the game. But if you donate too much, then you're going to hurt your own position and you cannot win the game there either. So it's all a matter of donating just the right amount while also keeping yourself in the lead for your most valuable portfolio. There's shared information to where there are cards that players only two of the players at the given table at, at a table at the table will know. So you don't actually have a hand of cards in a sense that you have your tableau of investments, but there are some cards that you and your neighbor to the right know, and there are some cards that you and your neighbor to the left know, and you're going to be playing cards from each of those two shared knowledge groups of cards. And if probably if I had a copy of this game and I was able to play this more, having gut would be higher on this list, which let's face it at number six, it's already way up there. This is one of my very, very favorite games plays in 45 minutes, plays three to five players, arguably is best at four or five, but I I've enjoyed it at three as well. Fantastic game. Highly recommend checking it out if you ever get a chance. That's Habengut number six. Welcome to the top five. Here we go. Number five, 2016, designed by Alex Berry and published by Victory Point Games back when there was a Victory Point Games. <clears throat> High Treason, The Trial of Louis Rial. Oh my, when I first heard about this game, I knew I had to have it. Just for the theme alone. It is a two-player only game. Plays in about 45 minutes or so about a part of history that I was completely ignorant about. I didn't care about the theme at the time when I learned about the game. I cared about what it is that you're actually doing in the game. If you are familiar with any CDG or card-driven game in which you can use a card for either the uh, command value or whatever the number is in the top left corner usually or for the event, this game kind of is a riff on that system. However, one side plays the prosecution, 
the other side plays the defendant and defending in the trial of Louis Rial. Now, this goes back, I believe it's the 19th century. It could be the 18th century. So forgive me for it, not exactly knowing that. But it is about a gentleman in Canadian history uh, by the name of Louis Rial. And there is a, I would recommend you checking out the history of this. But the fact that it is a courtroom drama where one side is trying to prosecute Louis Rial and the other side is trying to defend him. That is a fascinating idea and concept for a game. So if you're familiar with a Twilight Struggle or a 13 Days or something of that ilk, the mechanisms in this game somewhat are going to be familiar. It is low production quality. It's a victory point game. So I, I don't it does not get knocked for that. In my opinion, it is a highly, highly thematic and highly tense game that is absolutely one of the best two-player games that I have played and highly recommend everybody checking it out. It is, I'm looking right now on BGG, there is a copy for $5 available on BGG, which I have no idea why somebody has it that cheap, but seriously, I hesitate to talk about worth, but if you enjoy two-player card-driven games, and you enjoy games that want to make you interested in history, go check this out. High Treason, colon, The Trial of Louis Rial. Can't recommend it enough. Number four, the edition that I have is the most overproduced, unnecessarily overproduced game on this list and one of that I own, but oh my do I love this game, regardless of which edition of this you have? And that is QE. Came out in 2017, designed by Gavin Birnbaum and published originally by Cubico Games, also now published by BoardGameTables.com. Chad over there has, has made his own uh, version of this game because these were handmade wooden components uh, with dry erase markers and whole nine yards really overproduced, but that's kind of Cubico Games' shtick. Uh, I highly recommend checking this game out, whether it's this edition or the far uh, not overproduced version from BoardGameTables.com. It is, here's the gist of it. The financial crisis has occurred. 16 too-big-to-fail companies from four countries need bailing out. The central banks have unlimited financial resources, so lots of money is going to be printed. But the central banks also face disaster. If you print too much money, and the country they represent will go bust. So in QE, or quantitative easing, you play the role of a central bank. You bid on different sized companies to accumulate various levels of victory points. The amount you bid is unlimited. You could bid $1.00 or you could bid $1 billion. It is entirely up to you. Because you are the central bank, you can do so, and you own the printing presses, so you can print as much money as you want. After the initial opening bid by the lead player, the other players bid in secret, and then after the 16 companies have been bailed out, bonus victory points are awarded for company sets of nationalization, monopolization, diversification, so on and so forth. However, 
players add up their victory points and the amount of money that they printed. And the player who printed the most money loses and cannot win the game. Kind of like what happens with having gut. If you didn't donate enough, you can't win the game. So you need to be careful. And it, it, it'll, this game plays three to four players. Uh, I, I've, I, I think it plays great at both of those player counts plays in about 45 minutes. QE has as a legitimately non-party thinky game has filled me and the people I'm playing with. I have seen more laughs and more guffaws and more agon, just agonizing moments than just about any other game, especially for the game length that I've played. Cannot cannot recommend this enough. I love, love, love QE. So quantitative easing or QE, Q.E. Dot, uh, definitely check that one out. The oldest game on the list comes in at number three. I love trick-taking games. I have been playing these games pretty much my whole life. I've been playing card games, whether it's hearts or spades, canasta, cribbage, all kind ca- gin, rummy, uh, all kinds of card games. I grew up playing these with um, some of my earliest memories are playing these with my mom and to a lesser degree, but with my grandma and other folks. And so I, I, I feel like I grew up with cards in my hand and this game outside of your standard 52 card deck. Uh, this is probably the closest to that type of game out there. And that is wizard, uh, designed or published in 1984, designed by Ken Fisher and published by about 22 different publishers. It's a deck of cards. It's 52 card deck, uh, one to 13, which is your four suits, which, uh, including aces and face cards normally. Uh, but there are four wizards, which are the high cards and four jesters, which are low cards. And players compete over multiple rounds based on the number of players. Whoever ends with the highest score wins in each round. Players are going to be dealt a hand of cards in the first round. You're dealt one card in the second round. You're dealt two cards all the way up to the last round where the entire 50, uh, eight car. I'm sorry. The 60 card deck is dealt out. Then Trump is determined by flipping the top card of the undealt deck. If a suit is revealed, that suits Trump. And while if that card is turned up as a jester, it's turned down and there's no Trump for that round. If the card turned up is a wizard, the dealer chooses one of the four suits as the Trump suit. Dealer cannot choose no Trump in that case. On the last round, each game, all cards are dealt out. So there's no Trump players state how many tricks they expect to win in the round. The playing and winning of tricks is usual standard trick-taking rules, right? If you lead a suit, all players have to follow that suit. However, if players lead a jester, then the second player determines the suit led. If a player leads a wizard, then those who follow can play whatever they want. However, in all cases, a player may always play a wizard or a jester, even if they have cards of that suit, since those are technically not of that suit. Then you determine the winner of the hand. If somebody played a wizard, well, the first player that played a wizard wins the wins the trick, uh, and then leads the next trick. Whoever uh, played the highest of the trump 
wins the trick. If nobody trumped, then whoever played the highest card of the suit led. If all player plays jesters, which is rare but can happen, whoever played the first jester wins. After all the tricks have been played, players tally their score for the round. If they match, if a player wins as many bids as they bid, so in other words, if I bid four tricks, I took four tricks, they score 20 points plus 10 for every trick they took. If a player missed their bid, they lose 10 points for each trick that they were off, whether they took more or less than predicted. So there you go. That I, I just taught you how to play wizard. I love trick-taking games, and I fancy myself as a very strong, very good high-level trick-taking player. And so Wizard never gets old to me. And so some folks might be screaming at their at their radio or whatever they're listening to this on and saying, what about tissue? Yes, I love tissue. However, two things. One, it's too long to fit on this list, so I can't put it on this list. And number two, for what it's worth, I've played tissue for the first time this year. Obviously, love the game. I realize that's more a ladder game, but I digress. The second thing is, tissue requires you to have a partner, whereas uh, hearts and wizard don't. Everyone for themselves. So I can count on just me. And so unless I have a, a solid partner that also enjoys trick-taking games, I can enjoy this to my heart's content. So there you go. My number three, wizard. Moving up to number two is an old winsome game, but a lot of folks probably know it by its reprint name. Reprint name, Paris Connection. Original name, SNCF. Originally designed in 2000, well, I'm sure it was designed before then by John Bohr, but published in 2010, published by Winsome Games and SNCF, Paris Connection by Queen Games. It's a cube laying game or a cube network building, a cube train game, cube, however you want to word this. It's a network portfolio building game with a train theme that is an awesome, awesome, awesome jumping off point for getting people into uh, shared incentive games as well as route building games. If you want a quintessential entry point into a trained theme uh, for new gamers or you just have say 15 minutes to spare you can bust out a game of SNCF slash Paris Connection whatever you want to call it it says it plays in 30 minutes the setup time and rules explanation take longer than actually playing the game it is a very very simple game where in the end you're going to be either building investing in companies by uh, turning in one cube from behind your screen. You have a certain number of cubes depending on the number of players, and you're going to either turn in, which is one share of that company for two shares of a different company, i.e. getting two cubes of a different company, or you're going to be building rails with that company up to a certain amount. You can build up to five rail or place out five cubes from the community of that of that. Uh, a company and when it hits cities its value increases at the end of the game whoever has the highest portfolio or most lucrative portfolio which is determined by the number of cubes of a company multiplied by their share value based on what cities they have hit and that's it however you are only allowed a certain number of 
shares. You cannot just continue to swap cubes and have an unlimited number of shares behind your portfolio or behind your screen. You're limited in that. So it's whoever does that best as well as invests in the right company and has the right amount of things wins the game. It is super simple to learn. It is super simple to teach and it's super simple to play, but there is a lot of thinky strategy in this game. And it also is arguably the quintessential jumping off point for getting into route building and shared incentive games. Cannot recommend this one enough. Uh, I feel that every uh, gamer out there could conceivably own this game and have a spot in their collection for this. So that is Paris Connection or if you prefer SNCF. Which brings me to my number one game for a thinky filler. This also, I feel like every single collection has a spot for this game. Originally called The Climbers, it was re-implemented by Capstone Games as The Climbers. That's a joke for those scoring at home. Originally uh, published in 2008, designed by Holger Lanz. uh, Originally published by Chili Spiel, which no longer is with us. However, Capstone Games has taken it on and has a fantastic hit on their hands. I... Could not be happier that uh, Capstone reprinted this game. It is super simple. It is eye-popping. It is my favorite game to start out playing at a convention because it will attract attention from anybody walking by. It's a great icebreaker. It's very simple. Everybody has their own climber that starts on the table. They have a climber in a certain color. Their climber can always climb up at eye eye level on any blocks on this cube or this cube tower that players have built that they can that's either on their own color or on the neutral color on their turn they move a block and can move up they can move up as high as they can move up once all players cannot have not successfully moved up in succession the game ends whoever's highest wins if tied whoever made it there first wins that's the gist of the game amazing icebreaker there is a lot more strategy here than you would think from looking at a little uh, kid looking or a kid's game. It looks like cannot recommend this one enough. The climbers. I have loved this game since the very first time I played it. I have both editions of the game and everybody should own this game. Plain and simple. The climbers will never get old to me. And I think uh, there are variants available for being able to use your uh, ladders to uh, go from tower to tower instead of just moving them up. Little rule breaker, one-time use rule breakers that they have. Never gets old. Cannot recommend enough the climbers. So there you have it. That is my top 20 thinky fillers as of August 24th, 2019. All right. I know there are probably people also screaming at the radio or whatever it is they're listening to on this on and wondering about, hey, what about game X? Well, there's a number of games that I wanted to put on this list that either didn't fit because too long or that I feel like the way we play them don't fit on this list. Or there's one huge, big, massive omission that I haven't played enough and I don't know. I haven't played it recently enough to know whether or not I would actually have it on this list. 
So let's start off with the elephant in the room, and that is Race for the Galaxy. I haven't played Race for the Galaxy in four years, five years maybe. And when I learned it, it was very early on in my board game playing career, and the iconography was way overwhelming for what it was, and I couldn't really handle the game very well. I have since gotten the itch to play Race for the Galaxy, but it hasn't happened yet. So I'm very much excited to get into that. And you know what? We revisit this down the road. It very well might be on this list, but as it is, it's not right now. So there you go. All right. So that that's the exp- uh, explanation for no Race for the Galaxy. Other games, The Estates or Noya Heimat. I think it's best played as a series of games. So like three or four, whatever, best of three, something like that. So therefore, there's no way that this would fit into the 45 minute time frame. So that's why the Estates or Neuheimat would not be on this list. Another game that I've been hearing a lot of good things about is Pastali. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of really good things about it, but I haven't played it yet. So there's that. Tinner's Trails, Too Long. And then other games that just missed the list are uh raw is another that just was a hair too long i think it plays in about an hour so that one didn't make the list uh so other games that just missed the list so dominion uh tinner's trail azul hue not way but hue h-u-e the little uh pack of games game Atten, Through the Desert, Jiraku, a number of various winsome games because those tended to fall in the hour-long time frame. Uh, I think I said Dominion. Yeah, Tenor's Trail's a little bit too long. So yeah, there you go. So there you have it. Those are some games that either just missed the list or for one reason or another just didn't make it. So there you go. I am very, very curious to hear your guys' feedback and to hear what you guys think would be in your top 20 or if you don't want to put in that much work, your top five. Even ordering them in top five order is really hard, but I find that it's really eye-opening. So I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts. So reach out to me. You can hit me up on Twitter at Heavy Cardboard. You can email contact at heavycardboard.com. You can hit me up on Facebook. Uh, if you're a patron, then you can always obviously hit me up over on Slack. If you want to become a patron, you can check it out over on patreon.com forward slash heavy cardboard, or you can go to pledgehc.com. There are other options in which you can support the show there. So I'm There you go. My top 20 thank you fillers. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I will be back in two weeks with another review. Looking forward to that. I hope you all are. If you're going to Grand Con, don't forget, we have the meetup at 7 p.m. on Saturday. I hope uh, you guys come by, say hi, hang out with us, have a meal. And otherwise, let's play some games. I'll talk to you all in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye.